Welcome to the Entmoot Podcast. I am Kenny Tallarico. I'm here as always with Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you? I'm well. Today we have uh, a, a big one. Uh, we're going to be talking about conceptions of race and ethnicity uh, within the Legendarium. It's a very contentious subject, I think. There are lots of people who feel strongly. Uh, and we're going to be primarily talking about a paper that was uh, recently published uh, posthumously. Uh, it's called The Wretched of Middle-Earth, an Orcish Manifesto, and it's by the, uh, the philosopher and political thinker Charles W. Mills. Uh, he passed away in uh, 2021 from, uh, from cancer. Uh, he was only, he was young, he was only 70. We're going to be mainly talking about uh, this essay and uh, the arguments that he makes, what we found persuasive, what we didn't, and um, what that all means. Uh, but a little bit about Mills. Uh, he was a philosopher of, uh, of race and of politics. His, uh, his most famous work is called The Racial Contract, and it's basically an argument about Western liberalism and specifically the idea of the social contract uh, where, where citizens of, of liberal democracies or societies will um, cede some of their rights in order to secure protections from the state about how that has always been applied unequally to people of color and about how ba basically arguing that that's by design that the system requires a sort of permanent underclass of people of, of people of color he's considered one of the uh, primary thinkers of what is actually uh critical race theory and not what you know they say is critical race theory on on fox news um yeah he's also as, as you might expect uh he was a leftist he's I, described as sort of in this wikipedia page a mix of marxism black radicalism and racial liberalism and also really quickly i should say that i think me and kenny both originally saw this paper because jamel Bowie tweeted it out i haven't read any of his other work but this piece is very well researched and argued there's a few, you know, small flaws in it that are only going to be relevant to obsessive Tolkien people, and we'll get into those, but, I mean, overwhelmingly uh, a good argument. Um, and, uh, yeah, rest in peace to this guy. Yeah, definitely. And and it, we should say, it is, I, I think, pretty damn critical of Lord of the Rings and, and of Tolkien coming from the perspective of... Uh, sort of a, a racial analysis of it uh, and, and a class analysis as well. We, we, we've talked a little bit more about the, the class aspect of it in the past uh, and he, he sort of focused on on both here, but I think more primarily the, the racial. Because of that, you know, I mean, of course, Sam and I are both Tolkien fans, obviously, so I think we came into this paper sort of guarded, but I think he, Mills, I think his arguments are very persuasive. I think Sam and I have both sort of in, in what's another thing sam and i actually haven't really we haven't talked about our interpretations of this paper at all until right before we started recording for like a minute yeah like barely so we're going to be sort of discussing this in real time um but i think it's uh perhaps indicative of something that i think we both kind of came out with a similar conclusion uh coming in with a similar sort of uh pretense of feeling defensive and then of fairly persuaded. Yeah, I, I think that there's sort of a specific way I want to start this, which is that a lot of the stuff in his sort of first part, not the prelude, but the first part of his essay, it's broken into parts, is the stuff that I think is the most inaccurate 
and it is also the least important to his broader thesis. So I sort of want to move that to the end because I think it's probably sure. more important to first discuss what he gets right. He sort of foregrounds this by saying, you can do this sort of racial analysis of, of really any work, but that it's especially legitimate to do it of Tolkien's work because Tolkien is purporting to, as we've discussed ad nauseum, write a imagined history reflective of truth of our own world. The Legendarium broadly is set on Earth in a you know imaginary antiquity, and the hobbits are, as Mills points out, explicitly supposed to be British people, and they're li- or English people, excuse me, the writers of Rohan being Anglo-Saxons. I think that uh, his sort of initial framework is well-reasoned. You can extrapolate pretty easily because this is supposed to be uh, reflective of the real world. Totally. We should also say that this is, uh, he, he wrote this, uh, there's not an exact date given, but it's before the movies. It's in the 90s at some point. You can figure out when it is by him referencing how long it's been since the books were written. I mean, even though this was only published in 2022, I think it was written about 1990. It is clear that he had not really read the Silmarillion. And I think the only problems, which again are sort of few and far between, but the only problems in this essay come from that. I do want to first say uh, the the really important framework that Mills is applying in this paper. Uh, well, first of all, he, he's aiming to sort of draw a connection between the way that Tolkien uh, represents uh, the the races of Middle-earth, um, draw a connection between that and how the sort of early 20th century uh, racists, race science uh, advocates and, and eugenicists, people like that, uh, portrayed the hierarchy of races, and and also not just the early twentieth century, but but going back, he he talks about how a lot of European nations, or really the idea of of the nation state in Europe, arises out of codifying class hierarchies into racial distinctions, um, and uh, and 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 he he sort of is is making that connection between the real world way that race is constructed and uh, some similarities in how Tolkien portrays his races. So coming into it, just keep in mind that he's drawing that parallel, and what we're really talking about is uh, advocating a worldview where there is an apparent and obvious and apparently uh, sort of divinely ordained uh, hierarchy of of racial differences. Yeah, that was very well put. Going with that, where I would want to start this, because it's where the essay really started grabbing me, and really persuading me is around page 13, 14, 15. Halfway through page 13, there's a, it's labeled B, part B. And he says, consider now the case for the Islamic and third world character of the orcs. To begin with, of course, there's a simple geography of Middle Earth itself. As several commentators have pointed out, Tolkien's wor- world is one of uh, Pisagius Moralisis, a moral cartography in which North and West are generally associated with good, South and East with evil. He then talks about how Sauron's allies, uh, the men of the South and the men of the East, beyond the boundaries of Middle-earth where the story takes place, are clearly representative of Africans, Indians, Arabs, and other Asiatics, to use Mills' words. Yeah, it's indisputable, I think. It, it is, it is, yeah, it is indisputable. He talks about how the South Southrons are described as wild men with red banners, shouting with harsh tongues. How those from far Harad are black men 
like half-trolls with white eyes and red tongues, while others are swirtings who ride on elephants, which are clearly elephants, and have dark faces, long black hair, and gold rings in their ears, which is just like, you know, old racist caricature of South Asian people <laughs> riding around on elephants with gold uh, earrings. I don't think this is super uh, nuanced at all. They're described as united both in their, quote, evil servitude to Sauron, that's from the books, and this is another quote from Return of the King, hating the West. Yeah, I I, I highlighted that and underlined that several times. Uh, and it's, it's, it's honestly remarkable that I did not notice that when I was reading Return of the King like a few months ago. Yeah, South Asian coded um, sort of uh, warriors. Hating the West is such a, yeah, it's such an on the nose way to put it. I also, and where this really, where he really gets going is he talks about how so many people tried to connect this to the Cold War, which doesn't work because Tolkien explicitly said a number of times that it wasn't about the Cold War. And also, even though he hated communists and hated Nazis, he didn't really like the West of the 20th century that much either. He viewed them all as corrupted civilizations. And Mills asserts that, you know, all these critics talking about the Cold War analogies are sort of missing the forest for the trees for the more obvious racial reading. And where he really gets going is talking about a really early modern and sort of medieval racial reading where there's this Islamic menace in the East and also the menace of the Mongols. We'll come back to that, which are sort of Mongol and Turkic people and Muslim people, um, or di different Muslim peoples, you know, Arabs, Turks, etc., are the big threats to Europe, um, roughly from 800 onwards, in the European mind. I came away from this reading pretty unpersuaded about the points of Tolkien espousing a sort of proto-Nazi racial narrative. I didn't think this stuff about the Aryans was persuasive really at all, but that he's espousing this early modern and pre-modern racial view where black, Asian, Middle Eastern, South Asian people, etc. are threats to Europe. This seems pretty damn accurate. Again, not that they were actually threats to Europe, but that this was Tolkien's view. I do want to uh, offer perhaps the most uh, the, the most feeble defense of Tolkien that I can muster, which is that the portrayals of, like you're saying, these sort of uh, pre-modern like threats to, to the West or to Europe, offensive racial caricatures of the, the, the gold rings and the elephants and all of that stuff. I think that, and, and this of course doesn't make it okay, it never makes it okay, I think that you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a British author writing about some sort of a global conflict in even in a fictional world that that doesn't have i can't remember off the top of my head but there were a number of 19th and early 20th century pieces of fantasy and folklore written in in britain which came at it from a sort of explicitly socialist perspective a lot of these were sort of utopian allegories and although some of these were also racist a lot of them uh much less so um and sort of early anti-imperialism i suppose what i'm more saying i think is more mass media like yes, one of the more famous fair. authors in in Britain in, in in the early 20th century would have been like a Rudyard Kipling who is writing, you know, the white man's burden. And like this is the this is the high point of 
of British imperialism. And of course, I don't want to say that the um, the the socialist writers that that you're talking about, uh, I'm sure Tolkien would have hated them. I would love to know his opinion on Bertrand Russell, who was very anti-imperial. I'm sure that exists. Oh, it must. I'm sure that Tolkien ha- wrote somewhere about Bertrand Russell, and and we we haven't uh, we haven't come upon it. But I I agree. I think that that would be an interesting. Uh, I mean, they probably knew each other. They like, they must have. They must have. So yeah, that that is. I never thought of that connection. That's very interesting. I'm I'm sure that he had opinions, as he did about everything. But uh, yeah, I I would. So I'm not necessarily. I'm not saying that it's like oh, it's everybody was doing it. It's so of course there were people then as now who uh who were who were aware of the um in the inherent evil of uh, the the imperialistic british empire and imperialism generally i think that mainstream british culture especially like when tolkien was a child and and in his formative years in like the early 20th century i think that's the high point of the white man's burden it's britain's job to to civilize you know the third world i guess they wouldn't have called it the third world but it it, speaking of that one something i was working through in my head when i read this was as i was reading these pages i was thinking well you know this is a racist depiction but these groups aren't inherently evil they're evil because they've been swayed by sauron but where does that lead you to the conclusion that Gondor must then reconquer slash newly conquer these areas and civilize them, so to speak? So even with the defense of Tolkien that, oh, they're just being swayed by Sauron, where that leads you to, given his you know portrayals of them, uh, is a sort of defense of imperialism. And, and a defense of quote-unquote civilizing missions. Absolutely. I was having the exact same, not about that specifically, but we're going to talk more later about uh, some some stuff about orcs, which I think is the part of the, the paper that, I, that I'm most interested in, in, in hearing your thoughts about. But um, I was having similar sort of uh, ping-pong battles in my head of you, you, you go round and round, I think. Uh, and so I totally get what you're saying that it's like the when you follow even with a defense when you follow these things to their logical conclusions you end in a very bad place um which which is the case here with what we're talking about with I I, I don't think that there is really I, I agree with you generally south the southrons and the easterlings I think that like yeah I I really do think that this is a particularly medieval sort of vi- or, or late medieval vision of racism uh, was how I came away from this essay thinking. I wasn't as persuaded with the arguments about some of the more modern perceptions. Although he he does also explicitly say that he's not saying that Tolkien was a Nazi. His argument is that Tolkien's thoughts spring from the same groundwell which produced the Nazis, which I also think is incorrect because racism comes in so many distinct flavors and forms. I, do, I don't want to sort of underplay like that this pre-modern idea of of race and of racial conflict, I guess, I, I don't really th- know how different that is from the more from a more modern. Like, I mean, think about this is published at like you know the the Cold War is just getting going. I mean, what is the Cold War but the ultimate battle between the East and West? I mean, you have lots of you have lots of accounts. Actually, we're going to talk later about Lothrop Stoddard, the 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 famed American. Uh, uh, eugenicist and and sort of race scientist, just like an all time piece of shit. And 
he is, this is not referenced in the paper i just happen to know about this for whatever reason but when the the, the russian revolution is happening in 1917 uh he, stoddard is, is writing you know like fuming uh, steam coming out of his ears writing about how like literally saying like the slant-eyed Lenin in his capital at the Kremlin. He's of Mongol stock, like stuff like that. Yeah. When you're reading sort of contemporary accounts, it's like Tsarist Russia was very much, quote unquote, part of Europe. The Romanovs are intimately related with all of the other monarchs of Europe. If I recall, I think that Nicholas II, the, the last Tsar, I believe his wife was Queen Victoria's daughter or granddaughter or something like there was a very intimate connection between the romanovs and uh, the the kings and queens of of england the, russia was very much considered to be european in that way i mean the capital was st petersburg a very sort of european city well anyway this isn't super relevant but but i do think that it, there's a little bit of the east west dichotomy is not just a sort of uh, pre-modern thing of, of it's course not, not it's right not. that's still something we i mean i mean god look at the the war on terror for Christ's sake, <laughs> like it's still something that you know. The, the, there are still sort of the these conceptions of the West versus the East, where you know the East is is uh, dangerous and uncivilized, and ha you know that sort of bullshit. Like that's still a hugely driving force. And the war on terror and sort of the, uh, you know fear of this European slash white notion of um, Middle Eastern slash Asian slash African Muslim terror. Mills returns to, he talks about how the changing borders of Gondor, which at points extended south and east, and how sort of Haradrim and, and uh, other areas like that exchanged hands between Sauron and Gondor multiple times, uh, is very reminiscent of Muslim-Christian conflicts in the medieval era, uh, he says, for example, Sicily, Malta, Southern Italy, Jerusalem, all shifted hands multiple times. And then he continues, the so-called black years slash accursed years in the second age, um, preceding this events of Lord of the Rings when Sauron ruled over most of Middle Earth being overthrown in the last alliance, would simply correspond to the earlier Islamic domination of the Mediterranean, including the 700-year Moorish occupation of Spain. Uh, I also found this argument very persuasive. I'm gonna be. I, I'm gonna be honest. I I want to disagree. I was not super. I wasn't particularly convinced of the of this. I think, for me, I think the reason is that where I find Mills at his most persuasive, uh, and his most effective, is where he is essentially, essentially making an argument about the sort of uh, like the phrase the word you use wellspring. I think is good of the sort of this this stew of white European uh, racial hatred and racial fear uh, as being uh, this sort of ground in which where Tolkien is reared and, and, and where his writing comes from. I mean, ultimately, he is sort of a British conservative, right? But uh, I, I think that where it's less effective for me, including this part, uh, were the places where he is drawing these sort of more... Uh, uh, more discreet and sort of concrete like historical parallels but i don't think it has to be that discreet or concrete because i don't necessarily think tolkien was consciously thinking of these parallels but the parallels That's more, yeah. are there and if you're obsessed with you know medieval stuff 
obviously the early medieval stuff, which he's into, like Old English and Old Norse and stuff, precede or are sort of unrelated to all of this, although not completely in the case of Old English, but the sort of medieval mythos and construction of medieval fantasy is all centered around uh, the Muslim menace and particularly fights over Israel or Palestine and Spain. Uh, this, the tale of Roland was, during the medieval and early pre-modern period, the most popular uh, source of, fair, uh, of fairy stories and folklore, more so than King Arthur. King Arthur being the dominating one is a later trend. That was explicitly about Charlemagne defeating the Muslims in Spain. So if that's the sort of culture and literary body which you're you're ground in, I think, and, and you're not critical of these, which he wasn't, as were few people of his time, it's gonna be... It's not surprising that these similarities would rear their head. Um, and also the entire construction of Europe as we think of it sort of evolves from the Crusades and the wars in Spain and fights with Muslims. Uh, this is only sort of upended uh, in the Cold War, I would say, with the later West-East dichotomy. Um, and, and fights with, and the Ottomans also complicate stuff somewhat. But uh, I, I really think it's that sort of pre-Ottoman, post-Muslim invasion of Spain period, you know, roughly like 800 to like 1450, that a lot of this mythos and folklore comes from and the stuff that Tolkien was grounded in. Although not completely, we're going to get into the non-Indo-European stuff later. Those are all excellent points, I think, and, and very well said. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose when you are talking more about uh, that it's coming out of a particular literary tradition, and of course, like, there's probably not that many people who are more familiar with the sort of literary tradition of, of the medieval period in Europe than, than he was. Mills, I think, makes the argument that, like, the story of Lord of the Rings is kind of explicitly like a, it's basically a crusade. Um, and I think there are some weaknesses to that. But but I think it's kind like, you can see a sort of story like this that you can map onto the real world. And it, it starts to look a little bit like, uh, like a crusade, right? If, if, Gondor is, I mean, I, Tolkien, there's problems with it, like I said, like, Gondor is clearly, like, supposed to be Rome, uh, and I think it would be more applicable if, if Gondor was uh, Jerusalem, or, or Palestine, in, in, if you're making a sort of crusade argument, uh, there, it also doesn't make as much sense, if you're trying to draw that parallel, to have, like, two focuses of evil, with Isengard and with Mordor, although, I guess Isengard might be Moorish Spain. If you're mapping it onto a, sort of, Gondor as Rome story, you could then say that, um, Sauron and Saruman represent the, um, Persians, who are obviously not Muslim, this is pre-Islam, and the uh, sort of Germanic tribes or European barbarians to the north. In Rome, Ro you know, Roman history, there's two clear threats outlined. So that still sort of maps on in a different way. But in that view, it still works. Just from the geography, I kind of thought you were going to say that Saruman might be like Hannibal. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> and they're the Carthaginians. That's too early. I don't think I don't think he's doing <laughs> it. He was doing a, a Republic era. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I think that's that's true. But then you're then you're doing an entirely different 
allegory, I think. You are. But you're still talking about the idea of Europe in some capacity. Yes. Yeah, I think, well, that's central, right? Is, is like the conception of what is Europe and what are the threats that are, that we're going to not consider, like that, that are not Europe, basically. What are the threats from without? Uh, and um, yeah, I think it, it, it does. I agree. It does sort of still work. And you do also get, obviously less so with the Germanic tribes, but you do get a threat to the East. Uh, that is sort of a a highly sophisticated uh, so- society civilization of its own. Well, you know, maybe now is a, a good time to sort of move into some of the, the discussion about orcs. I agree. Uh, yeah. I, t- to me, this is a little bit, this is, uh, this to me was, I think, the part of the paper that I found myself writing stuff down the most and either in agreement or, you know, points of uh, conflict, I guess. Um, But I think we can say broadly, um, like I mentioned earlier, there is a Mills is arguing about uh, Tolkien portraying the races of Middle Earth as in a very clear sort of hierarchy. And he's arguing basically that, that that is a very similar looking argument to, uh, basically like Nazi arguments about race uh, with elves being in sort of the place of, of Aryans. It's a difficult sort of analysis to contend with because if, you know, if you find that persuasive, then it's like, uh, well, why do we like Tolkien so much? <laughs> I can get right to the part that I, I found to be the most interesting. And I, and I, I don't think the analysis is, is correct um, in, 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 in a very important way. So, he he talks basically about uh, orcs as being very clearly evocative of people of color. Or, uh, he talks about how Tolkien always talks about them being swarthy or dark uh, or black even. And also, once again, slant-eyed or squint-eyed. Yeah, that that is a, that was one of his favorite uh, descriptions. I mean, can you, again, this doesn't make it okay, can you imagine the type of shit, like, bedtime stories that Tolkien would have been read <laughs> Oh my, was, yeah, I, I, like, you know, six years old in uh, 1901 or whatever. Or when he was four in colonial South Africa. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. He literally, he literally comes from, we probably should have dug deeper into this <laughs> in earlier yeah. podcasts. Thinking back to it, we sort of skipped over how that may have influenced him. He comes from colonial South Africa where his father had a colonial role. Like, that is his origin. He doesn't remember it well, but that is his origin. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that probably has some effect. <laughs> yeah, it probably does. I mean, if we think about, like, not all white South Africans are bad, but if we think about the most prominent white South African in the world right now, that clearly also had an, an influence <laughs> on Elon Musk's view of race, right? Yeah, uh, an excellent point. And I mean, I don't think there's any problem with saying, you know, Tolkien is basically Elon, right? I think that's pretty yeah. <laughs> unobjectionable. Uh, but anyway, though, um, orcs as sort of a, uh, a, proletarian, uh, a proletarian class, uh, Mills, makes, Mills says that orcs seem to be the only beings that do any work in Middle-earth which I think is, is that is definitely correct. We've talked a little bit in the past about orcs as sort of uh, proletariats. I think we, we especially talked about that in our episode on uh, on a leftist interpretation of Lord of the Rings. Uh, and and we've, I think, argued that, that it's, it's, it seems to us basically like pretty correct that, uh, th- that, that orcs uh, represent the sort of uh, these sort of proletarian laborers of of 
modern society. Um, but that is where I kind of want to start because he's basically arguing that that it's a feature of this viewpoint that he is describing that uh, lower class working class labor is inherently associated with uh, less deserving or less worthy beings which in a sort of racist society and framework would of course be whoever falls on the bottom of the 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 racial ladder and I think that that argument like if you're talking about the real world I, I think that that is correct and i and th- this will get into something more that we can talk about later about how useful some of the arguments are uh, that that draw parallels between the real world and and tolkien's world because it feels to me that there is a point where you have to say okay but that's not how it is here i agree but i think this is where i would like to quote a a, a letter from tolkien which will which um mills cites where he says and this is tolkien quote the orcs are definitely stated to be corruptions of the human form seen in elves and men. They are, or were, squat, broad, flat-nosed, sallow-skinned, with wide mouths and slant eyes. In fact, degraded and repulsive versions of the, to Europeans, least lovely Mongol types. Pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, it's rough stuff. I would also say, I think Mills makes a good point to not specifically demarcate between, like, black or east asian or south asian people and say that a lot of these groups especially the orcs are just sort of amalgamations of different racist stereotypes of different non-white groups around the world yeah totally totally yeah i i should rephrase what i said earlier that i I, orcs are not specifically like black people but yeah it's a racialized other with a combination of of traits seen stereotypically being in a combination of black and asian and south asian people i mean when you read that when you read his the the description of what they look like it is you can't argue with it (laughs) yeah i i don't i i don't think there's much of a counter argument there honestly i think a point that that is is really worth talking about though is again i i think that it is obviously like i wish that that was not the way that he described orcs, right? I wish that this was not something that we, it's, it's a really uncomfortable, uh, it's an uncomfortable thing. As Al Gore would say, it's an inconvenient truth. Uh, I think where Mills gets it a little bit wrong, he essentially says that, that Tolkien is blaming the degradation of Mordor and the rest of Middle Earth on the sort of proletarian racialized other orcs. Uh, which again, he says, are the only beings that do any work in Middle-earth. So they're the ones who despoil Mordor and and ruin the environment. Uh, the, and um, they're also the ones who are deforesting uh, Isengard. I felt that the, the argument about Tolkien blaming orcs for the degradation of Middle-earth, I, I don't think that that's correct. I think that it's it's pretty clear, again, at least from, from my perspective, that orcs are not like they're not really portrayed as having free will which i mean i don't think they do have free will and again this is kind of part of what i was talking about with like the sort of ping pong back and forth in my head of like okay well then that means that they can't be responsible but then i think okay well wouldn't like the european racists that mills is sort of uh drawing parallels to here wouldn't they have also said well they don't have you know the the people in the east don't have free will either or or whatever like it just gets more and more difficult but nonetheless i do think that in this world orcs and the orc 
don't have free will. Uh, they're completely sort of enraptured, or engulfed in their fear of uh, of Sauron. I, I don't know. It it becomes harder, I think, for me to to follow this thread of like. Therefore, like the the proletariat is responsible for for all of this. I don't know. What what do you think about that? Yeah, I think his arguments about the sort of idea that it's the where he talks about the, the uh, Tolkien's ecological ten or environmentalist tendencies, um, and how he's really blaming the proletariat for the destruction of the world. That was less compelling to me. Like I think you can far more strongly argue that he's blaming like masters of like business and government for it i mean if you like i i think he's blaming masters of business and government i think that's the more accurate class view i also think he's blaming people of color for it is a somewhat accurate view it's not necessarily blaming people of color so much as just portraying the bad guys as people of color which is just racist. The thing that always sticks out to me is the orcs having, like, the Cockney accent, right? Uh, which is, you know, clearly a signifier of being working class, lower class. And uh, I think that there is sort of a, a dual sort of thing happening where uh, Tolkien's primarily blaming, like, the, again, masters of business and government, uh, which in this case would be Sauron and Saruman. Uh, the Scouring of the Shire, I think, is a particularly uh, vivid example of that, Um but I think that he's also basically saying, like, and look what, you know, and and look at, uh, uh, look at these sort of, you know, laboring masses. They're all so dirty and, you know, maybe products of miscegenation and race mixing. Like, I think it all kind of is coming together. And that's also where you get some of the, like, intra-European racism, where it's, like, a lot of the racism talking about, like, the laboring classes was because, like, oh, you know, I heard that they're, I, I you know, they're, they're like, mixing with Mediterranean stock, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's also a particular Mills, he quotes, he quotes the American uh, white supremacist, prolific and influential Theodore Stoddard, warned of an inundation of Nordics by inferior but more fertile races. And in a quote that could be tailor-made for uh, Lord of the Rings, again, this is quoting Wills, pointed out that today the small dark types in England increase noticeably with every generation. The swart cockney is a resurgence of the primitive Mediterranean stock. That's where I was drawing that from. Now, I, I, you brought him up. I'd like to just do a quick discussion about this guy. Uh, so, so Mills calls him Theodore's daughter. Theodore was his 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 birth name, but he went by his middle name usually, which was Lothrop. Uh, so he was uh, Lothrop Stoddard. He was born in 1883. I've never trusted a Lothrop. That's what they always say. And uh, this is truly, I mean, just a completely fucking despicable person. Uh, there, there are some things about him, though, that are just like, you can't help but laugh about how ridiculous this shit is. Um <laughs> And so, Sam, I just want to, I don't know how much you know about him, if, if anything, but Nothing. I, for, okay, I, for whatever reason, did kind of a deep dive on this guy years ago. Uh, I, I don't remember how I even came upon him, but like he was a, uh, like, so just for a little bit of context, he is the one who introduced the term uh, Untermensch, like the opposite of Ubermensch, into like the Nazi conceptions of race uh, in the 20s. Uh, so, like, this is a, a prolific uh, American white supremacist asshole. Um, Iconic racist. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
yeah, he died in, in 1950, so I'm really glad that he at least got to see uh, uh, the Nazis uh, collapse. And yeah, so a, a little bit about, about this guy. So Sam, first of all, you'll be happy to know he was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, and, <sighs> and uh, his alma maters were Harvard College, Harvard University, and Boston University. <laughs> Oh God! So very deep, deep New England roots. Um, I gotta say, I feel bad. I feel bad for all the BU heads. With that being in there, that one's actually a bit of a surprise. Um, <laughs> a school whose most famous alum is MLK. But yeah, he. So so I mean, yeah, Stoddard. Uh, it says he studied law at BU. Uh, he um, and he 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 went to undergrad at Harvard College, and he got his PhD in history from Harvard University in history. I met again. Like, think about getting your PhD in history in like the early twentieth century when like the leading one of the leading thinkers in in your field is like Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> yeah. Oh Jesus. This is a quote directly from the Wikipedia page. Um, in 1923, an expose by Hearst's International revealed that Stoddard was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and had been acting as a consultant to the organization. Uh, funny that the Klan has consultants. Stoddard privately dismissed the Hearst magazine as a, quote, Sam, wait, before I read it, who do you think that he, uh, he says that the Hearst magazine was uh, was a product of? Uh, 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 what are the Jews? Privately dismissed the Hearst magazine as a, quote, radical Jew outfit. Um... <laughs> <laughs> he had such a detailed description of like here are the tiers of all the of all the different races and then he's not the Finns go just above the Ergics and the Estonians yes exactly and just below exactly and like like he's not just just talking, below the Hungarians he's not just talking about like you know white people and black people and and brown people or, or something there, there's just so much about this fucking guy that it's it's insane that like people like this existed uh, like this form of scientific racism is just like it's 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 like unbelievable that this was so prominent <laughs> yeah it's bad i feel sort of bad that we're laughing at it we're, we're neither of us are, are at all trying to make light of how truly despicable this shit is but it also is like laughably stupid and absurd uh and again i i, I mentioned him earlier in, in his description of like Lenin as being, you know, sort of Asiatic, right? Uh, by the way, I'm also seeing here, uh, during a 1921 speech in Birmingham, Alabama, President Warren G. Harding praised one of his books. That's cool. Uh, uh, shocker, shocker. Another war common, common Warren Harding L. And the, the, the good news is that, uh, after World War II, Stoddard's theories were deemed too closely aligned with those of the Nazis, and he suffered a large drop in popularity. His death from cancer in 1950 went almost entirely unreported, despite his previously broad readership and influence. So, we'll say, as a subtext of this episode, fucking rot in hell, Lothrop Stoddard, you piece of shit. Yeah. But uh, we, we, we will still laugh at you and what a dumbass you were. Also, apparently, W.E.B. Du Bois, like, eviscerated him at a debate. Uh, in 1929, like, they had a debate organized by the Chicago Forum Council. Can you imagine W.E.B. Du Bois debating this guy? <laughs> <laughs> du Bois, quote, Du Bois knew that the racism would be unintentionally funny on stage, as he wrote to Moore. I saw, I see that in the, <laughs> in the, in the Wikipedia article. It's insane. 5,000 cheer W.E.B. Du Bois laugh at Lothrop Stoddard. Common Du Bois win. Oh my God! Du Bois took W's nonstop. Also invented actual sociology. 
yeah, extremely common Lothrop Stoddard Owl as well. <laughs> Ubiquitous Lothrop Stoddard Owl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lothrop Stoddard was a uh, a board member. Uh, he was he was a board member and a founding member of the American Birth Control League. Sam, do you know what uh-huh. that later became? <laughs> I actually don't want to guess because my guess feels like it would be too offensive to this organization if it's right. I think you're probably correct. What's your guess? Did it become Planned Parenthood? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Lothrop Stoddard was a founding member, along with Margaret Sanger, of the American Birth Control League, which would later be renamed to the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Okay. Sam and I are both pro-choice. We both support Planned Parenthood. <laughs> yes, we are both uh, pro-choice and support Planned Parenthood. We, we know about the sort of connections between the sort of eugenicist movement of the early 20th century and some of the uh, early sort of women's rights uh, of that period, like Margaret Sanger, especially associated with them. Uh, but I was shocked and appalled to see that that this fucking guy was essentially a co-founder of Planned Parenthood. Uh, I mean... Good for good for Planned Parenthood for making uh, doing well enough that we all forgot about Lothrop Stoddard. Ex- exactly, yeah. Good, good, good for them, and they and you know they do lots of great work. Planned Parenthood is great. I also I, I want to quickly say we can get the senators on the side. I think this is going to need to be a two parter because I need to get going pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I I agree. There's there's almost there's too much to talk about. There's so much to talk about here. The Mills piece. The more I think about it is really compelling and even the things that i think he sort of gets wrong which i think we're going to really touch on in the next episode are great jumping off points to discuss stuff but i think we should end this first part by saying yeah tolkien racist yeah i think we probably would have come into it being like yeah tolkien had some some like very old-fashioned and bad views of of race i think coming out of it it's like yeah this is like this is cartoonishly racist shit and tolkien was certainly a racist and uh, I think, Sam, you and I, maybe in the next episode, are going to have to come up with a justification of why do we still like his work? <laughs> come to the next episode to find out if this podcast can even still keep going and if we still like Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's... Um, One difference Tolkien has with Lothrop Stoddard is he would not have had a problem with me. True, yeah. Tolkien did not have a... did, did Seemingly did not have a problem with, with Jews. Uh, he By all accounts, lots, did not, yeah. Yeah, wrote in lots of letters about how... Uh, about how he had lots of respect for Jews and 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 liked Jews. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's good, at least. <laughs> he also, like, I mean, it bears mentioning, he was explicitly not a Nazi and hated the Nazis. Um, yes. There is no capacity in which Tolkien would have supported uh, genocide against any group or mass sterilization. He also was certainly not a race scientist. We'll get into no, this in the next... No, absolutely not. We'll get into this in the next episode and and this sort of... But um, the the race science is a distinct racism from earlier forms. Even in uh, sort of the antebellum South, there was a lot of opposition to race science because they felt it went against God. And the preferred idea of racism is that even though, uh, you know, these, the antebellum South intellectuals and slave owners would have said the blacks are inferior, they're still children of God. I don't even think Tolkien would have actually stated that he thinks blacks are inferior I think that that was, to some extent, a, a subconscious view, which clearly comes across in his work. And I think it's maybe less subconscious when you get into his views of uh, East Asian people. But there, there is a difference between him and Lothrop Stoddard. It's still tough, though. 
I think the like Tolkien racist. I think is, is of course like Tolkien is a racist or was a racist. I think is like correct. I don't know how much more or if at all sort of meaningfully racist he was than like the average British person of his lifetime. That, Which yeah. again, it bears mentioning is not a a complete excuse. There were no, explicitly not non-racist British people in his lifetime. Absolutely. No, it's not an excuse at all. I do think that there is merit though to like this is coming from like an extraordinarily racist society and Tolkien by his own accounts was like a sort of a was a conservative, right? And I think that uh this is a a, a point where you you are kind of having to to deal with that in a in a really in a really ugly way. Like being a conservative in a like a, a fundamentally racist like violently imperialist society uh i think that you get some you get some very very ugly uh outputs from that sam uh this we didn't even i feel like we didn't even scratch the surface uh this went by so fast um rest in peace charles mills holy shit this dude Open my eyes. Because I had seen, like, people be like, online be like, oh, Tolkien's racist. And I was like, well, not really. And <laughs> I read this and I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's an excellent it's an excellent paper. It's very, very well argued. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the problems we had with it in the next episode. But uh, it, it is it is very good. I would also say that one of my other takeaways from this is that the Lord of the... And he actually sort of says this in regards to, like, the Lord of the Rings is a lot more racist than The Hobbit. Um... It's also a lot more racist than the Silmarillion. I don't think you you can't make any of these arguments really, or, or you can only make a few of them sort of about the Silmarillion. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, you know, maybe we can uh, pat ourselves on the back for being woke that the Silmarillion is like both my and your like favorite book and not Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe it's because subconsciously we were like, oh, this is so much. This has, depicts race in so much of a better way. That's <laughs> of course not why, but. Uh, I, we do love the Silmarillion. Um, and, and, and I do kind of think that there's like, I do genuinely feel like the Silmarillion has lots of like more nuanced, uh, things to say about human nature, I guess through this will be our final tease for the next episode. But the idea that all elves are good and the elves are Aryans that Mills argues is completely correct. If you only read Lord of the Rings, and the Hobbit and the reason why it's false only comes through if you read the Silmarillion. Yeah, and if you're familiar with uh, elvish history, basically. Yes. Uh, so, okay. We're going to talk about lots more stuff uh, on the next episode. Uh, Sam, thanks for a, uh, a difficult discussion about uh, a massive downside and problem with one of our favorite authors, of course, and the subject of this, this podcast. Uh, but I think this is really informative and, and really great to to sort of hash out. This episode is dedicated to Chris Rufo, the, the modern day Lothrop starter. <laughs> so true. But yes, yeah, so um, definitely uh, rest in peace to Charles Mills. Uh, a, a, a great paper from him. We're going to talk more about it in uh, the next episode. Uh, Sam, again, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. This was this was a yeah, difficult conversation. Definitely.
Entmoot Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.